Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Isn't there peace and comfort in that wonderful, wonderful, precious name? Somebody said there's a heartache on every pew. And I want you to think about the people sitting in front of you, the people sitting beside you, the people sitting at the end of the row, the people sitting behind you. There's probably somebody hurting, somebody going through a trial. How do I know that? Well, that's the human condition. And even in the Bible, it says that the trials we are going through are common through our brethren. We like to think we're unique. We like to think we're the only ones. Everyone else has got it all together. No, they don't. No, they don't. Everybody's struggling. And even those who are living for the Lord, the Bible says, if you live godly in this life, if you desire to live godly in this life, you're going to suffer persecution. Everybody's going through something right now. Uh, we uh, have been praying for Mary Shantz and her husband, Tim. Her father passed away last weekend, and she's in the hospital today, and uh, she's afraid that uh, her water may have broken. And it's early. It's early for that baby. We need to pray for her. A lot of stress that they're under. And then also, um, Preston Burns, his brother passed away on Friday. Preston got to witness to him this past Wednesday and uh, he was not really able to respond on things but uh, he did some and uh, so we're praying that when we get to heaven we'll see him there but uh, pray for Preston and his family in the meantime okay thinking of anybody else if you've got somebody else on your mind you want to pray for or you want them to know you're praying for them Shoot them a text real quick and just say, your church family loves you and we are praying for you. And uh, if you've got something to give thanks to God for or to praise God for, we don't do that nearly often enough. Why don't you give him praise as we uh, take some time to pray this morning? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Heavenly Father, we want to come and praise you as our creator. We're not just evolved, we're not just accidental, we are created in the image of God by a powerful creator, and we acknowledge that this morning. We're not our own, we're bought with a price, and we're made in the image of God, and we thank you for all of that, and thank you that we can know that. We thank you, Lord, for this world you've created, and we thank you that you have seen us safely through the storms last night. But not only those kind of storms, but you see your children through the storms of life. And we thank you for walking with us, going with us through all of those things. We thank you, Father, and praise you because in your infinite love and mercy, you have chosen us in you before the foundation of the world, sent your Son to die for us, to bear the wrath of God for us. And because he is raised from the dead and because he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father... We have assurance that we are loved, we're defended, and we are accepted even in the hour of our death, accepted into heaven itself, into that place that John 14 says you have prepared for us. We thank you for friends. We thank you for family. We thank you for laughter. We thank you for the joy that we can experience in life. And we thank you, Lord, even for our trials. We thank you for the sorrows. We thank you for the pain. Because it makes us more aware of your love, your power, and your grace. And also more aware of how we can minister to others. Don't let us ever get selfish. Let us always use the experiences of our life 
to touch other people for your glory. And we want to pray for Mary this morning. And we want to pray for the baby that she's carrying. Pray that that baby would be safe. Pray that if there is a delivery coming up today, that all would be well. Pray, Lord, if it would please you, you would hold things off until a more opportune time. And pray that you'd bless Tim and the boys. And pray that they would all feel your presence and know their church families praying for them right now. We pray for Preston and we pray for all of his family. We pray that you would bless them and pray that this would be used to... Uh, sometimes it takes someone we love dying and someone that reminds us of our own mortality to cause us to serve with a greater intensity and to be aware of other people and to minister to them. And pray, Lord, that this family, like all of our families that have been touched by death, would have our eyes opened and our hearts to be more tender and compassionate toward other people. But also, Lord... He and his family need to receive comfort that only the Holy Spirit can give. And I pray you would give them that. And I pray for people who are concerned about their jobs. People that are concerned about decisions that they have to make. People that are going through marital problems. People that are going through trouble with their children. Thank you that you are the answer to all of that. Give peace and give grace. Give instruction. And uh, may Jesus be praised through this message, and through our listening, and through our response and application of it. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Okay, if you'll take your Bibles this morning, and let's go back to uh, Exodus 35. And we're into a part of this that starts to get, in our minds, a little bit repetitive. A little bit, maybe a lot repetitive. And... Um, the book ends with the people's obedience in building all of those things we spent so much time talking about. We're going to cover just a little of it today. And uh, before we do that, I want to read you some uh, statistics that uh, I found. And these are from about a year ago so that they are actually a little bit worse now. But it says, uh, this is from uh, Pew Research. It says, the vast majority of Americans, 90%, say that they believe in some kind of higher power. Okay? That's a lot. You just kind of wonder, but who is the higher power that they believe in, right? Well, 56 professing faith in God as described in the Bible. 56%. Now, when I read some of these, I look at that and I go, well, that's better maybe than I thought. What, how am I supposed to take that? Well, two ways. Number one, it tells me that there's still hope. We're still a majority. There's still some hope. Secondly, it also tells us 56%. We're on a downhill slide, though. And we need to realize that. Okay, 56% professing faith in God as described in the Bible. And another 33% saying that they believe in another type of higher power... Or spiritual force. A lot of hope in that. Hope has a name. His name is spiritual force, right? It's amazing. Some people pray. Yeah, they pray. But when they pray, it's more of a to whom it may concern type of prayer. And uh, that's a horrible place to be. And that's where a lot of people are. Uh, no matter what they say, that's where a lot of people are. I I'll go on. Only one in ten Americans say they don't believe in God or a higher power 
of any kind. That number, by the way, has increased since this poll was taken. Um, Anyway, also in the U.S., Christians are particularly likely, 99%, to believe in God or a higher power. You know, when I read that, I go, well, I hope so. What, what in the world is that 1% doing, and why would they bother to call themselves Christians, right? With 80% claiming faith in the biblical God. Well, where's the 20%? And where are they getting this? And what are they doing? And it's because we've come to the place now to where, oh, you can believe the Bible, but you can also believe in a dream. You can also believe in a vision. You can also believe in a prophetic word. You can also believe in the Hindu Bible. You can also believe in the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's it's just all messed up. And so 20% say that they believe uh, in the God of the Bible. Amazing. Three-quarters of Christians describe God as all-loving, all-knowledge, and all-powerful. Like Christians, most Jews, 89% of them anyway, have faith in a deity. But just a third of Jews, 33%, say that they believe in God as described in the Bible. 33%. Isn't that amazing? While 56% say that they believe in some other higher power. Jews are also more likely than Christians to say that they don't believe in a spiritual force of any kind, 10% versus 1%. And finally, among those who describe themselves as religiously affiliated, also known as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, 72% say they believe in a higher power of some kind. They have no religion, but they believe there's something out there somewhere. We call that agnosticism. And about half, 48% of U.S. adults, believe God determines what happens to them most all of the time. Nearly 8 in 10 U.S. adults think God or a higher power has protected them I mean, you hear it all the time. Oh, thank God we didn't have that wreck. Oh, thank God they didn't die of that heart attack. That that comes out of our mouths frequently, even though uh, there may be nothing else. So they think that a higher power has protected them. And two-thirds of Americans say that they have been rewarded by the Almighty. At the same time, fewer see God as judgmental and punitive... He would never punish me or send anybody to hell, in other words. With just four in ten saying that they have been punished by the deity in which they believe. He's just love, that's all. He just gives out lollipops and gumdrops and, you know, all of that. But he would never punish. Yet they would claim to believe the God of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? But here's what I really wanted to get to. Younger adults, those under the age of 50, are less inclined than older Americans, I resent that, to uh, believe in a biblical God and more likely to say they don't believe in any higher power or spiritual force, while roughly two-thirds of older adults say that they believe in the biblical God. Just 49% of those in their 30s and 40s, and just 43% of adults under 30 
say the same. Boy, that ought to break our hearts. Something's not happening. Something's not being transferred down. I'm 62. That means I'm only 12 years older than this breaking line at age 50 and everything back. My goodness, what happened in those 12 years? Well, that would have been the mid-70s. Remember all the marches? Remember the socialism? Remember all of the sexual revolution? Remember uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll? Remember all of that kind of stuff that's going on? We're reaping the fruit of all of that. And some of you say, oh, yeah, right on, man, and all that. Reaping the fruit from it. All of the things you hate came from that era that you idolize. It wasn't so glamorous and wonderful. The fruit of it is awful, awful, and we're losing these generations. And even with this age gap, an overwhelming majority of the youngest adults continue to believe in God or higher power. And 8 in 10 of those ages, 18 to 29, say that they believe in at least some kind of spiritual force. Americans with a high school education or less are more likely than college graduates to believe in God. That's what you're doing when you send your kids to school, by the way, to college. You're paying tens of thousands of dollars to make them atheists and agnostics. To believe in God or a higher power, 94 versus 84%. And they also are more likely than those who graduated from college to believe in the God of the Bible. 66% versus 45%. Again, not, not good numbers. And to believe that a higher power determines what happens in their lives most or all of the time. And it's uh, 59% versus 33%. Okay, And so then when we proclaim a sovereign God... It doesn't connect with people that are under 50 because I don't really believe that God does anything except reward them and protect them every once in a while, but he wouldn't do anything else. and He doesn't control anything that's going on in life that's bad, and he certainly would never punish anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Christians or Jews or anyone else, or just the numbers are going down even among those who believe in, and here's the key, the biblical God. Not just a force, not just a power, but the biblical God. What is happening that we are not able to take... and, And when we talk about people that are 50, I don't really consider them to be young. But that's the breaking point. Breaking point. And they're the ones from them and on down. And as you go further down, it only gets worse. And so that leads me to our passage this morning. You say, what in the world does Exodus 35 have to do with modern-day America? And we're going to take this passage that is kind of descriptive, but we're going to make a very practical application to it. And I want to talk today about how to walk with God, because what this, these statistics scream to me is, apparently, apparently, There are a lot of people that are 50 and above who would claim to walk with God, but their walk with God didn't make any impression on those who are 50 and under or very little of an impression. Well, we want to be high-impact people for the glory of God, not minor-impact people. It also says 
that maybe uh, we haven't taught the younger people, those 50 and under, again, I kind of resent that, but uh, we haven't really taught them how to walk with God. Now, one of the things that I've noticed being in the ministry since 1979, a lot of parents in church make assumptions about their children. I cannot tell you how many thousands of times I've heard parents talk about something going on in the world, and uh, when you ask them, boy, we'll be praying for your kids. Oh, my kids know better than that. I've heard parents actually say, actually say, well, my child would never lie to me. Yeah, that's a joke. That's a joke. I've heard people say, parents say about their kids or about their grandkids, well, they already know this. I've taught them. They've been in church. You know, one of the things that's kind of funny, when it comes to like our personal testimony, Nearly every parent and grandparent in here would probably say something like this. Oh, my kids and my grandkids, they know my testimony. They don't want to hear that. Do you ever remember a time when you didn't listen to your parents? Yeah. You see, it only works if you tell them when they are interested, when they are listening. You're going to have to tell them your testimony over and over and over again. You might even ought to write it down somewhere and let them read it. Because they don't always listen to those things. They don't always listen, sorry, they don't always listen in Sunday school. They don't always listen in children's church. They don't always listen in Awana. And they don't always listen at home. You cannot make assumptions anymore. Bodhi Bauckham made the statement, and of course he's a big advocate for homeschooling, and uh, he makes the statement, don't send your kids to Caesar and be surprised when they come back as Romans. You know, we could take that thing and apply that to a lot. Don't teach your kids to sell out to sports and wonder why they're not sold out to Jesus. Am I right? Don't teach your kids that they've got to sell out academically and then soft pedal everything they get out of the scripture. We challenge our children athletically. We challenge them socially. We challenge them in the arts. We challenge them academically. But then when it comes to church and the Bible, oh, they're not interested. And about all they know when they graduate from high school is God made the world and we are helpers. About as deep as it goes sometimes. They know how to play games. They know how to do some other stuff. They know how to cry at the appropriate moment. They know some of the vocabulary to get the old people off of their back. But it's not real. Somebody said it's like getting a flu shot. You get just enough to keep you from getting the real thing. And I'm afraid today that this generation, 50 and down, has had a lot of fun at church. But they really haven't received truth at the church. That's got to be of paramount importance because everybody and everything wants your children and your grandchildren, even Mickey Mouse. There are all kinds of groomers. There are people that are discounting what we do here this morning. Even I, who fits in the older category of this survey, again, I kind of resent that, 
I was a freshman in college, and a speech teacher, a speech teacher said, it is our job to take freshmen and to tear down everything they learned from their parents and everything they learned in the church so that we can rebuild it. That's a long time ago. And they've been doing it, and they've been doing it well. The radicals of the late 60s and the 70s, the weather underground that bombed the Capitol and other places like that, and people like Angela Davis, the communist, and all of those people, they found out that marching in the streets, shooting people and blowing up things didn't get the American uh, soul. So you know what they did? They became the faculty. And as the faculty, they are teaching our children these things. And that's why when you go to college, you come out with less faith than you went into it, even at some so-called Christian institutions. When I read that kind of stuff, and when I look at that kind of stuff, and I see the world around us, you know, we look and, and I uh, heard somebody say the other day that this whole thing about being woke, it came on so fast. You know, hold up, Ringo. It's been going on for about a hundred years. This goes all the way back to Woodrow Wilson and people like that. And the communist, socialist, uh, woke agenda, all of that kind of stuff coming up. And have you noticed that the more woke we get on all of that, the more divided we get? The more race conscious we are? And the more immoral we are on these kind of things? There's more confusion, there's more despair, there's more of all of that kind of stuff. And that's what we're bringing our little children into, into that world. And it's almost like we're throwing them into the creek and saying, learn to swim. And they're not. They're going with the flow, but they're not learning to swim. You need to be praying for those who are younger. You need to be praying for them. You need to be encouraging them. You need to be an example to all of them because they use you. You see, the younger people see when you're on Facebook in church. Gulp. Younger people see when you skip out and they go, well, if church is not important to them, why should it be important to me? We have a standard, older people, that we are supposed to set. And this is not a game. It's called war. And it looks like right now the other side is gaining what is going on when we have truth and when we have power and we have hope whose name is Jesus, but we don't seem to be even giving it to our own young people. Boy, something's out of kilter. And it's almost like we're singing the right songs, we're saying the right things, but have you ever been driving a car where a tire was out of balance? I mean, the car still runs, it still accelerates, the air conditioner's still working, all of that's going, but that boom, 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 just drives you crazy. Can't wait to stop or get it fixed, either one. And I think there's something even today among Christians, something's out of balance in the family. We sing all of the right songs, but our children see in our family, are we really 
sold out to Jesus? Do we really live by the word of God? Do we really have morals and ethics that come from the Lord? Do we really show kindness and gentleness and mercy? Do we really hold up firm convictions uncompromisingly? And those kind of things. Do we admit when we're wrong? Do we make adjustments when we should? And do we have a biblical reason for doing so? More than just our feelings. And more than just our fears. Or anything like that. And so today, as we look at the Word of God in Exodus 35, I want to talk about from the tabernacle and its furnishings, it tells us how we are to walk with God. At least it gives us a good start. And so, just in case you've never heard that before, here it is. Just in case you need to be encouraged in it, you used to do it, but you're not now, here it is. Let's take it seriously. And here's what we find in verses 10 through 19. So if you've got your Bible open and you're ready for the Word of God, can I hear you say amen? Amen. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make All that the Lord has commanded. Verse 11. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. The table and and its poles all its utensils, and the showbread, also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and its oil for the light, uh, the uh, incense, the altar, the incense altar, pardon me, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen for the door, at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating and its poles and all its utensils and the laver and its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for all the gate of the court, the peg of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their uh, cords, and the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Okay? You probably read that and you do what I did when I read it, and I said, Lord, what am I supposed to do with that? Because we've already kind of been through some of that, and I don't want it to be just, so repetitive your eyes glaze over and then I started thinking about this everything that we find in there gives us a clue about what God expects in our walk with him and his walk with us after all these people are getting ready to go on a 40-year excursion through the wilderness and God is going to be with them as he has promised but he says here are the things that I want and the things that you are supposed to do. And they point to some things. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive list, but it'll get you started. It'll get you going. And I would like to ask you, if you have 
never really known what it is to walk with God. Maybe you think it's walking and having certain feelings. Well, your feelings are fickle. Your feelings could be a bad pizza or something like that. Some of you think it has to do with visions and dreams. Well, what would happen if you never had another dream or had another vision? God would still be God. And how would he get his truth to us? He gets it through his word, not through anything else. What if we had to live on a desert island? Would God still be God? Would the word of God still be true? Absolutely. Sometimes we look at the Bible and we say, what does this verse mean to me? And I like what John MacArthur says. You need to find out what this verse would mean if you didn't exist. Then you can get an application. But it doesn't start with you. It starts with the writer. What did Moses mean when he was writing this? And what did the people understand when they read this? They were understanding that we've taken this offering. Now we need to get busy. We need to do what we have promised to do and what the Lord has commanded us to do. And as I looked down through these things, I started seeing our walk with God and uh, where we are. So number one, how do I walk with God? Number one, go to the scriptures. As we read that, uh, those verses, you notice that uh, we went down to that phrase that said, all that the Lord had commanded them. How do I know what the Lord wants? How do I know what he thinks? How do I know what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, what's up and what's down? The Bible prophesied there would come a day when men would call darkness light and light darkness and they would say good is evil and evil is good. Brothers and sisters, I'll submit to you, I think we're in that day. How are we going to sort this out? Well, you get a bunch of opinions together and they've always said that if you get three Baptists together, you'll have four opinions and that's kind of the way we are. How do we know? What do we settle on? And that is this. We've got to go back to what the Lord commands. How do we know what the Lord commands? Because he gave it to us in his holy word. And we've got to get serious about it. So your first thing in walking with God is, are you reading the scripture? That's where it all starts. You've got to read the scripture. You mean I don't just go to church and hear somebody talk for 40 minutes about it? No, that's a good thing to do. I'm not disparaging that. But that's not enough. You've got to be in the scripture every day and you've got to believe what you read and you've got to properly interpret it and you've got to apply it to your life. You say, well, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work and it'll take you a lifetime to get that part right. But uh, folks, you may be bothered by the things you don't understand, but I'll promise you there's a whole lot more that you do understand and focus on the things you do understand and the rest will come into focus later on. Get into the Word of God. Be under the sound of the Word of God. Saturate your life with Scripture. Fill your mind with the Word of God is what we are saying. There's an attack today that is going on. We're being taught evolution. Evolution attacks the very first verse in the Scripture and changes everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to tell us that we are created by God in His image. Well, if you take those two things away and earth is just by random chance, then that gives rise to radical environmentalism who says we must save the planet. And it also says if men and women, boys and girls are not created in the image of God, then feel free to abort as many of them as you want. You're welcome. It changes everything. That's why you and I as Bible believers had better be serious about the word of God. Secondly... We've got to treasure and reveal God's presence. 
He mentions in here building the tabernacle, its tent and his furnishings. What does that mean? That was God's way of saying, I am always going to be there. You are going to see evidence of me. <clears throat> You're going to be reminded of me. No more golden calves. No more wandering on your own way. No more doing it the way you had planned to do it. You need a visible reminder of how you're supposed to be. And in a New Testament sense, that's the beauty and the value of coming to church. I promise you, a lot of you missed something Wednesday night that you will need this week. But it wasn't important to you, so you didn't come. Some of you are going to miss a wonderful time of worship tonight. Ah, no big deal. It's just, yeah, and go on like that. And then wonder why your life and your family is falling apart. Because something is going to happen tonight that you need. And you've got to saturate yourself with it. And even if you say, well, I already know that. You know a ton of things you're not putting into practice. That's why it's repeated even in the Bible. So that you'll get it through your thick head. It's not enough just to affirm it. You've got to do it. That's why the Bible says don't just be a hearer of the word. But be a what? Doer of the word. We've got to do that because our kids and our grandkids are watching us. And they say, yeah, they say they believe it, but they don't do it. Must be a fairy tale. Must be like a princess in a Disney movie. Must be like a fairy godmother. It's just all in the same category. They've got to see the reality of all of that. And so that means we've got to treasure and revere God's presence. He is with us. We talk about that at Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. And it doesn't make a bit of difference in our life. Doesn't make a bit of difference in our thoughts. Doesn't make a bit of difference in our morals. Doesn't make a bit of difference in our fear of God. It's just a truth that we espouse, but we've got to get to the point of seeing the reality of it. And some of the things that you do that you know are wrong, you ought to have a holy terror about that because you're doing it in the presence of God. And that's what the tabernacle, that tent, reminded the people of God during their wilderness journey. Thirdly, God's presence guarantees His power. Will we ever be without the presence of God? No. Will we ever be without His power? No. And the power of God is not in this building exclusively. The power of God is not, I've got to run to church and I've got to get in an altar and I've got to light a candle and I've got to pray to a saint and I've got to do something holy and I've got to give an offering. That's not what the New Testament teaches about God. God is always with you. He's just as much with you at your home, at your school, at your work, in your car. He is always with you. So where do you get that? Did you notice all the references to and its poles, and its poles, and its poles? You know what the poles meant? It's portable. The ark isn't just going to stay at Sinai and every once in a while you make a, a trip to Sinai like Muslims do to Mecca. It means that God is going to go with you everywhere you go. And every step of the way, we call it the wilderness wanderings, but it really wasn't. They were being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And they took the furnishings of the tabernacle everywhere they went because that was telling them and symbolizing to them everywhere you go, every enemy you come in contact with, every difficulty that you have, every need that you have, whether it's water or manna or quail or whatever, God is there to meet it. Do you really practice the presence of God 
Do you understand that he is always with you? And because he is with you, you always have the power to overcome because Romans 8 says you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves you. I mean, that's really, really, really good news because you're always going to come across stuff that is bigger and, uh, than you are. I just can't handle this. Good, you're not supposed to. Let the Lord handle it for you and let him handle it through you. Why? Because the polls tell us that all of these things about God and his worship and his presence are portable. He's with you wherever you go and whatever you face. And God never shows up and says, where did I put my power? I think I left my power at home. I left my phone in my office a while ago and it's about to drive me nuts because it's not where it's supposed to be. You know what? God never does that. Everywhere he goes, his power is always with him. And he knows where you're going to go. He knows what you're going to face. He knows what you're going to go through. He knows how gut-wrenching it's going to be. And he has already prepared you for it. And he is with you as you go through it. Let the polls remind you of that. Number four, this, these furnishings remind us when we talk about the table of incense, we're supposed to be people of prayer. People of prayer. Prayer is not supposed to be just a casual, ritualistic, cliche, repeating thing. It is supposed to be a heartfelt thing as we pour out our hearts to the Lord, as we praise the Lord, as we confess our sins to the Lord, as we intercede for other people, as we pray about our needs. Not just a little formula that you repeat and then go about your day. We are, in fact, told in the Bible that we are to pray without ceasing. You can tell a lot about your walk with God by how you pray, how much you pray, and what you pray about. And so many times we pray all about the physical things, but never about the spiritual things. We're more concerned that somebody gets healed than we are that they go to heaven. We're out of whack. We're out of order on all of those kind of things. And we need to be thinking about that. And the glory of God almost never enters into most prayers that we hear. It's all about us. It's all about what we want. It's all about people that we love. And almost never about, Lord, how can you receive the most glory? Can you imagine somebody? Do you remember uh, Ed Lacey was here in January of 2020? He passed away of COVID. Do you know what the final prayer his wife and children heard him pray was? Lord, take my life. And if my death gives you more glory, then so be it. Can you imagine living like that? That would make an impact on your children. That would make an impact on your grandchildren. And that's what we need. Maximum impact. Number five. Remember and rejoice in your redemption. I used to think I didn't need redemption anymore. I'm already saved. I don't need the gospel. That's for babies. I'm already saved. Now as I get older, I find out I need the gospel every single day. I need to be reminded of my sin. need to be reminded of my depravity. need to be reminded of God's great love. need to be reminded of what Jesus went through on the cross. need to be reminded of what is waiting for me in heaven, that none of it is of me or by me, but God has given it to me by His grace through the death of His Son who took the wrath of God in my place. So where do you get that? The bronze altar. It was made out of bronze because it was outside of the tent and that's where they were going to offer the entire animals on that and that had to be strong enough to withstand the weight of the animal and the heat of the sacrifice. And boy, if we ever understood 
the weight of our sin that fell on Jesus, if we ever understood the fire of God's wrath that came upon him on the cross so that we would not have to spend eternity in hell, it would change the way we look at life, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at God, the way we look at his word, the way we look at worship, the way we look at other people. We're living in the age of Malachi. Oh, the Lord's table is just burdensome. That's what it says right at the very beginning. And that's the way we act. Oh, we're going to go to church. Oh, I bet they take another offering. Oh, my goodness. Why do we always have to be making meals for people? Why do we Oh, It's so hard. Nobody ever does it for me. You hear us? What if Jesus had been like that going to the cross? We've got an example and we've got to remember our redemption if indeed we are born again. We also find number six, that there has to be admission and confession of sin. When is the last time you've done that? When is the last time you've heard anybody do that? In fact, most of the time I hear Christians defending their sin, defending their actions. They don't confess. And they certainly don't forsake it. They've got to find a way to make it palatable, to make it work, to make everything the way they want it to be. I was talking with one guy one time and I said, yeah, uh, but to get a divorce, you do realize you're violating Matthew chapter 19. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And you know what he said to me? Looked me right in the face and said, well, I don't think God put us together. I said, brother, that's not what that verse is talking about. You are twisting scripture to make it fit what you want to do. And so instead of confessing sin, we twist scripture around and then we wonder where the blessing of God is, where the power of God is, where the grace and mercy of God is. You can't do that. You've got to admit and confess your sin. Proverbs says that he who confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy, right? But instead, we're too busy covering and excusing our sin. Where does the Bible say I can't do that? You know? Well, there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't say you can't do because there's a lot of things. The Bible never says don't look at internet porn. Anybody here want to stand to make the case that it is biblical to look at it? Didn't think so. See, we've got to get the principles of the Word of God, live for the glory of God, and then when we fail, as we all do, we all do, hear me, what do we do? First John 1, 9, we confess our sins, and we forsake it. But in our pride, we think we know and we found a better way. Number seven, almost through, we proclaim truth and we intercede for others. Notice how he starts with furnishings and doing what the Lord commands, then he comes down to the priest. That's really what it's all about. The priests were to proclaim truth and to intercede for others. They could go where nobody else could go. And you are a kingdom of priests, the Bible says. And you can go before God. Your lost neighbor, your lost family member can't. But you've got access to God. You also know truth that they don't know and they don't understand. Where are they going to get it? You're going to have to tell them. You're going to have to speak the truth in love and yet confidently, enthusiastically, joyfully. This is wonderful that you know the truth. That's what the priests did. And notice that they are told that they are to take this and make the priestly garments so that the ministry can take place. So we proclaim truth and we intercede just like 
the priests did. And then the last thing, it ends by talking about, and the garments of his sons. What does that mean? We're going to have to make disciples. Folks, we can't just go on the assumption that just because we went to church every week, our kids are going to get saved or know everything. We've got to actually disciple them. You're a wanna teacher for your kid is a wonderful person and we thank God for them. Your Sunday school teachers for your kids are wonderful people. I am a wonderful preacher, right? Oh, you're not supposed to laugh at that. But you know what? We are wholly and totally inadequate. God designed the family to disciple children. They've got to see it in mama. They've got to see it in daddy. They've got to see it in the family. Children are to be discipled. You are priests in your home. Men, you are the pastor of your families. And God says here very clearly, make the robes for Aaron. Yeah, that's a good thing. But Aaron's also got sons. What do the sons do? They take over for dad. This is supposed to be an intergenerational thing going on and on and on. And I may not be able to disciple somebody in Japan, but I can disciple my own kids. And I can be a disciple maker with my grandkids, and so can you. It ought to at least start with our family. Yes, I think it ought to go further than that. Yes, I think the church does that to some degree. But folks, we need to make a commitment today that discipleship starts with the people we love the most. And that is to start with our own family. Now, how are you doing? We gave you eight things. It's not all of them. You'll find other things. There's giving and different things like that that are in there. But this is a good start. How are you doing in your walk with God? You're just going through the rituals? You're doing a few of them? You're doing it half-heartedly? What, what, what's the deal? When are you going to sell out to God? When are you going to get serious about your walk with God? Because back here at the beginning of Scripture and the beginning of this nation called Israel, God clearly laid out, I want you to build this and we found out what it represents and what we're supposed to do. Those give us a clear picture of what God wants. Not just to be sitters and getters. Not just to win a Bible trivia contest. Not just to be able to judge other people and look down our noses at them. It has nothing to do with that. It's about our love for God and wanting to glorify Him. Worshiping Him in spirit and in truth so that He so fills our lives and everything that is in us spills over and splashes on everybody that we're around, starting with our own family for the glory of God. Then, maybe the statistics we read at the beginning begin to change. They begin to move. They begin to head in the right direction because we are actually having an impact on the people that we are closest to. So, whether your children are 50 or whether they've just been born, make up your mind, you're going to be a sold-out, Bible-believing Christian who loves Jesus with all your heart and you desperately want those that you are around and care for to know him enough to actually get your temper under control, to actually get your tongue under control, to actually die to self and not have to have your own way all the time. Getting to the point? 
all of those kind of things so that from the youngest to the oldest that are in there, they actually see, they see, they say, man, dad is serious. Mom is serious. This stuff must be real. And that's what I see that is lacking so much. We drag our children to church, but they're not seeing any reality. They're not seeing any benefit. They're not seeing any change. Or we're dragging our children to church, but we're not teaching them. And so it's not being reinforced. And so when they go off to school, and it's starting even in kindergarten now, saw a video the other day of a fifth grade teacher that was teaching children and telling them that when a baby is born, a doctor looks at that baby and makes a guess about their gender. And sometimes, most of the time, the doctors are right. But sometimes they're wrong. And then this teacher began to say, I was born and the doctors made a guess that I was a girl. And my parents gave me a girl name and they dressed me in girl clothes. But I'm not. I'm a man. You think fifth graders need to be learning that? Or maybe how to balance a checkbook? What's going on? Well, we've got to be... The line of defense, armed with the armor of God, filled with the Spirit, aware of what is going on, and going to war for the sake of our children. We have no excuses in this day and age. Heavenly Father, for those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, convict them of their sin. And bring them to a saving knowledge, repentance, and belief in the gospel for the glory of God. From our youngest to our oldest, we are praying for them and claiming these souls for you. And asking you to bring them to a knowledge of truth. We're asking you that they might be able to look anywhere in this church and see a man or a woman with God with conviction, with guts, with love, with compassion and with power on their lives so they can see the reality, not just in mom and dad, but certainly there, but in other people as well. And we pray, Father, that we be doing a good job of passing the faith along to the youngest among us, that in their minds and in their hearts, before the world ever has a chance to put anything in, the gospel and the truth of the Bible is there first, and that the truth might dominate their lives, no matter what the world tries to put in them. So bless parents, and bless grandparents, and oh dear Lord, bless our children, and protect our children in our schools, and everywhere else, and even in the church, that you might be glorified in their lives and they might know you and love you and follow you and leave a good legacy for their children as well. And we pray all of this because we believe it to be right and within your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.